Thee will I sing, my blessed Redeemer, my God and my King. My soul filled with rapture shall shout o'er the grave and triumph in death in the mighty to save. Oh, sing of His mighty love. Sing of His mighty love. Sing of His mighty love. Mighty to save. Most today, in the name of religion, will sing of His general love. They will sing of His universal love. We sing of His mighty love. They cannot sing this song without lying against their theology because His love is not mighty to save. And the love that we know from the Word of God and that we sing about is mighty to save, and it has saved, will save, and no one He's ever loved can ever be separated from Him. But brethren, what I want to speak to you about this morning is contained in that second verse, O bliss of the purified, Jesus is mine. No longer in dread condemnation I pine. That's in our minds. In conscious salvation I sing of His grace who lifted upon me the smiles of His face. Conscious salvation is gospel salvation. And that's why we preach the gospel, that we no longer have to pine in dread condemnation, but we know of the salvation that Jesus Christ has wrought for us. Conscious salvation. Most of the work of salvation is outside and beyond our consciousness. It's by the work of God. Most of it took place before the world began in the imminent purposes of God. But once we hear the gospel in conscious salvation, we can sing of being delivered from that dread condemnation that we so much deserve. Open your Bibles this morning to Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel chapter 13. Amen. And I would like to take a text out of context Amen. and use it as a text of the New Testament. But I'm telling you that in advance. The reason I'm telling it to you in advance is in Ezekiel 13, we have Ezekiel condemning false prophets, women, effeminate prophets, with their, prom- with their lies of hope to Israel without repentance. Right. And I want to take a verse from Ezekiel 13 and then show you just briefly how much that is fulfilled in much of what goes down for preaching in the New Testament. I hope you understand how I'm using it. It's a text out of context because the context of Ezekiel 13 is the city of Babylon. And it's warning against prophets who were promising hope to men who didn't have a right to hope. And I I want to show you these words and I want to show you how these words, these words so aptly describe gospel preaching today. Amen. Ezekiel 13 and verse 22. Ezekiel 13 and verse 22. Because with lies ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. Therefore, and we read God's judgment coming upon these preachers. 
The error is lies presented in the name of God that caused the heart of the righteous to be sad, whom God did not make sad. And these same lies strengthen the hands of the wicked so that they will not depart from their wicked way by promising them life. Ezekiel 13, 22. We are accused by believing that salvation flows from the electing, predestinating decrees of God, that there is therefore no motivation to live a holy life. We're accused of that. That's a false accusation. Because when we come into the New Testament, we see that faith and works are equivalents, and you have no hope of eternal life, or having had a part in God's decrees, without taking your faith and adding to it virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. Only by doing those things diligently and having them abundantly in your life can you make your calling and election sure. Amen. We preach the greatest motivation for works of any doctrine. Right. If I were to preach works in earning your way to heaven, that would not be as much motivation as this because all men know they could never do it perfectly. We preach works as the evidence. And so even though we do them imperfectly, we know they are the evidence of eternal life or we would be doing none of those things contained in 2 Peter chapter 1. They are the ones that destroy all motive for holy living because they promise the wicked life based on a bare decision that they make at some point in time. And if they've made that decision and they've written it down in the flyleaf of their Bible that they have a date that they can look back to, that a momentary decision made under the influence of persuasive men and persuasive organ music, they're saved forever. And once saved, always saved. That is a doctrine that has no motive for holy living. Right. Because it promises the wicked life. And it strengthens their hand in their wickedness so that they do not turn from their wicked ways. Amen. That is the decisional regeneration of our day. And that same doctrine destroys all the, the gladness and joy of the righteous by ruining the glory of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because no longer is Jesus the Savior. Jesus is the defeated loser who did not save most of those for whom He died. And so the heart of the righteous is made sad whom God did not make sad. And the hands of the wicked are strengthened that they will not turn from their wicked lives because of the promise of life in false theology. Now I've taken a text out of its context to apply it to New Testament preaching, which is this. And New Testament preaching does both of those things. What joy there is in knowing that there is a victorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God and is not disappointed in the least bit in any way. He is a glorious Savior, victorious, and He shall lose none of those for whom He died. That's the gospel we preach. Now, why do we preach the gospel? If God has saved us by His own power and might, and Jesus Christ died for us, and the Spirit regenerates us, and He will certainly glorify us, why do we preach the gospel? So that you can know about it. Amen. 
so that the elect can know what He's done for them. So as we just sang in that hymn, our conscious salvation, we can glory in it. And we no longer have to be pining away under the dread condemnation of God's law. It's for informational purposes. It's to inform us. It's to educate us that we can know what who God is, what He has done for us, what Jesus Christ accomplished, and what our hope is. Eternal life and eternal glory. Amen. That's why we preach the gospel. We preach it that the elect might know how they were saved and what they can do to please Him who has saved them. That is why we preach the gospel. We don't preach the gospel to save any from hell. Jesus Christ alone does that. Amen. We do not preach the gospel in order to make any righteous. Jesus Christ alone does that by His obedience, by the obedience of one. Many were made righteous. Right. We preach the gospel so that you can know you have righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we preach the words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in, with their New Testament intent. That if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are trusting His righteousness alone for your eternal life, you indeed shall be saved in that great day. Amen. Because only by the grace of God would you ever believe the gospel. Right. Because as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. We believe because we are His sheep. The first verse was Acts 13.48. The second one is John 10.26. We believe that the sheep... We, we preach the gospel so that the sheep might know that they have eternal life. May God bless us to stand firm in this doctrine. It is a rare doctrine, brethren. Right. We are in a small minority when we preach that the message of the New Testament is to believers. Now, isn't that just the height of folly that anyone would think anything else? Yep. Every word in the New Testament was written to believers. Yep. Uh, so should we be surprised that the character indication or the mark of all those people to whom it's written is always referred to as believers so that everything is stated relative to faith and belief? He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. We absolutely believe those words in their grammatical sense and in their New Testament sense. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. You don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be translated from the kingdom of Satan and death unto life. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are showing the evidence that you are already born again and you have life. Amen. We believe those words powerfully. We do not cast those words before the world in some foolish way. We simply declare the doctrine that Jesus Christ has saved by himself. And if a man will believe, if a man believes, the record that God has given of His Son, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, He has eternal life. Amen. That is why we preach the gospel. Then the gospel comes with so many blessings for us. There is hope after death. We are delivered from the fear of death by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So the gospel comes and tells us that there is a life after this life, and it fills us with hope. That's why we preach the gospel. Right. Death does not move us. In fact, because of the gospel, we can say that death is falling asleep in Jesus. Right. That is why we preach the gospel. 
Then we preach the gospel so that we can know what we ought to do to please him who has loved us and saved us. Poor Cornelius. He prayed to God how often? Always. Always. He prayed always. And what else did he do? He feared God. And he gave much alms to the people. And those alms and those prayers came up into heaven because he was already accepted with God. Right. He had been made accepted in the Beloved. But, Peter, but Cornelius needed to hear the gospel by the mouth of Peter. And what did the angel tell him in the very first occurrence? Why he needed to meet with Peter. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Amen. Cornelius needed to know what he could do to serve that God that had saved him. Amen. And so what did he do? He was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in a picture of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And he would have never figured that out if he'd have sat around for all of his life without hearing the gospel preached. And that's how we give God the answer of a good conscience. Do you think that was relief to Cornelius to be able to give God the answer of a good conscience? Yes, it was. That's why we preach the gospel. We do not preach the gospel to cause men to be born again. We don't preach the gospel to help men give themselves a new birth. We don't preach the gospel to help men get justified in any eternal, legal, or real sense. We preach the gospel so that men can believe and know that they are justified. Right, man. Yes, we're justified by faith. Justified in your conscience to the peace and satisfaction and contentment of your souls. Your faith does not add to the justification already secured with the Lord Jesus Christ. When he said it is finished on the cross, he didn't mean it is finished except what you're going to add to it. Right, right. He meant it is finished. And that's why we preach the gospel. To tell you that you are justified. And to tell you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that you can be more sure of your justification. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Now why would John waste his time writing an epistle to those that believe in the name of the Son of God? If they've already made a decision to believe in the name of the Son of God, then their eternal security is sure he ought to be out writing epistles to unbelievers. But it is not what happens in the New Testament. That's right. These things that are written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Why did he write? Because I want to give you some criteria by which you can measure your life to know that you are, that you have eternal life, and that you have been begotten of God. Right. And how does he finish up that verse? And that ye might believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Amen. That's why we preach the gospel, that you might know that you have eternal life and that we can believe on the name of the Son of God. Unless God has elected, unless Christ has died, unless the Spirit has regenerated, that preaching isn't going to benefit a person at all. Those three things must be in place first. And it's by those three acts of God, the operations of God, by which we'll be glorified in that great day. But the gospel comes along and tells us of our salvation. Some believe it a little. Some believe it a lot. Some never hear it. Some reject it. All of the elect will be saved to an, with an everlasting salvation by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Whether you want to accept or not, or believe or not, that Adam was your personal sin representative has no effect on that legal transaction. That's right. Most of the world has never heard of Adam. 
most of the world that's heard of Adam doesn't want to accept Adam. It doesn't matter whether you've heard of Adam or you don't want to accept him, as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We are all guilty of the fruit, of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so it is with Christ. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. He came into this world, he lived a perfect life, and he died a glorious death. He obeyed for us that we might be made righteous. Our faith does not add to his work. Our faith just certainly comforts us to know about this tremendous transaction that God made in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both sides of that legal transaction, Adam's sin for on our behalf because we were in his loins and Christ's obedience for our behalf because we were chosen in him, both of those are presented in the gospel and without the gospel we wouldn't know about them. But our believing them doesn't add to them. The work stands. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. How many pulpits do you think will preach on that text this morning? If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. We are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot be denied. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What we call Arminians are those that follow a man named Jacobus Arminius who believed that man had a free will and thereby man could make a choice whether he wanted to go to heaven or go to hell. We have nothing to do with them, though that theology is what permeates most Baptist churches in our country. Neither are we Calvinists. Calvinists are not far removed from that. They believe in election, but they believe that your faith is necessary. And there is no way that you can be justified without your faith. We teach that we are justified by the faith and the obedience and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And that our faith is simply the internal apprehension, understanding, perception, and laying hold of that righteousness secured by Jesus Christ for the comfort of our souls and our hearts. Huge difference. The Arminians we can call decisional regenerationists. The Calvinists we have to call decisional justifiers. Because they do not believe that the elect are justified until they believe. (laughs) When justification took place in the cross of Calvary, because Romans chapter 5 and verse 18 says that it was by the offense of one that justification came upon all men. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We are answering the question, why preach the gospel? We preach the gospel so that the elect might know of the glorious salvation secured for them by Jesus Christ of Nazareth on the cross, flowing from the electing and predestinating decrees of God, applied to them by the regenerating and sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost, which will all result in their eternal glorification in heaven. But we preach that they can know that, they can be assured of that, and that they can return those works to the Lord that would honor Him. 2 Timothy chapter 1, here's Paul writing to a minister under study of his name, Timothy. He says in verse 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.8 Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Timothy, you're a timid man. But God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Because the gospel is, as we have taught in the last two Sundays on this subject, the declaration of the power of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Who hath saved us? This is what we believe. Children, this is what we believe right here. Second Timothy 1, 9. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. We believe that our salvation flows from and is based on the fact that God chose us in Christ according to His own purpose and according to His grace in Jesus Christ before the world began. This was a transaction in the eternal counsel of God made before the world began. Before God created Adam, long before Adam sinned, God had chosen a people for His own name. They are the elect of God, and they are saved and called with an holy calling, not according to their works. God did not look and see them doing anything except sinning. And He saved them with an everlasting salvation according to His own purpose and grace, and it was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It was not given us the moment we believed. It was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel does not bring life and immortality. Jesus Christ abolished death. That is a glorious fact. Death has been defeated. It has been abolished. We fall asleep in Jesus. Death has been abolished. That is a glorious fact. That fact is only known through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because every one of us and everyone in the world is going to continue to go to funerals until they go without their choice. If you follow me. They go voluntarily to see their friends laying in those boxes, and they will soon go involuntarily for their friends to see them in that box. But Jesus Christ has abolished death. Whenever we, when, in the sovereign choice of God, one of us is laying in those boxes, we are all going to look at our brother or our sister in that box, and we are going to embrace each other, and we are going to know, and we are going to say, that they are asleep in Jesus and they've got to meet our brother, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, before we did. Amen. Praise His name. They're blessed. Amen. Blessed are they that die in the Lord. Amen. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. How can it be precious? Because death has been abolished. Amen. It's really just going to sleep in Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. And the gospel brings that news because all it says to the gospel is that it brings life and immortality to light. If you were to listen to most men, 
It sounds like that the gospel preacher has to take the gospel in order to bring life and immortality to men. Right. Nowhere in the world today, I can guarantee it in the authority of God's word, nowhere in the world today is someone being given life and immortality by the gospel. Amen. In the world today, believers are being told about life and immortality secured by Jesus Christ because it's the gospel that brings it to light. Amen. And every man has wanted to know about life and immortality. I mean, they've searched for the fountain of youth. They've tried all sorts of things. The fountain of youth today, by the way, is in every GNC store. That's the fountain of youth. They're preying on the aging baby boomers and their fear of death. So they're trying to find the fountain of youth in Prevention Magazine and GNC. But there is no fountain of youth except in the fountain that flew, that flowed out of Calvary when Jesus Christ died on the cross. Amen. He abolished death and brought life and immortality by himself, by his obedience. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. And how did we get in Christ to be made alive by his death? We were chosen in Christ before the world began. Right. How do we know that we're in Christ? By believing on Him, Galatians chapter 3 and verses 26 and 27, and being baptized in His name. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You show me a man that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's evidence that he has eternal life, and his baptism is further evidence because he's backing up that decision, that faith, that choice of his to cast himself on the mercy of Christ by obedience in baptism. That man shall be saved. Right. We don't have to play with that verse. We believe it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. In that great day, those that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and truth and were baptized <coughs> in sincerity and in truth shall be saved. Second Timothy 1, 9, and 10. All of our young people should remember these two verses. It tells us that our salvation is by the purpose and grace of God, and it was given to us in Jesus Christ before the world began. So when someone asks you, when were you saved? You could say, I was saved before the world began. Amen. Because it says that your salvation was given to you in Christ before the world began. Amen. But the gospel brings it to light. It turns the light on. It shows it. It reveals it. It displays it to those that want to hear it and believe it. And those that want to hear it are those that are elect, are justified, and are regenerated. Because without those three operations of grace, they wouldn't want to hear it. They would consider it foolishness and a stumbling block, and they reject it and hate it. Amen. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. The gospel just brings it to light. All the power is His, and all the honor and the glory is His. Amen. We're unique in our doctrine of salvation because we believe and maintain a consistent plan of salvation for infants and adults alike. Amen. <clears throat> Go read one of these high and mighty Calvinists who are who have spent their whole life combing out all their previous divines, as they call them. I don't like that name. I get nervous every time I read it. They call their fellow theologians divines. I only know of one divine. Amen. That's right. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But anyway, 
They spend so much time comparing notes with their fellow divines, and they come up with a plan of salvation by which if you do not believe, you cannot be justified. They are decisional justifiers. And yet they've got this horrible problem. Most of them were married, and most of their wives had had miscarriages, and they just do not know what to do. And you should see them squirm and wiggle like they're on a spit over a fire, trying to figure out how they can comfort their poor wives and the poor women in their assemblies that their babies have a chance for eternal life since they didn't have an opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. All of them are consistent. They all know that you have to be of age in order to hear the gospel and believe. See, we don't have to do any fudging with the Word of God or fudging with your circumstances. God is able to save infant and adult alike, and He saves them both the same way. It is by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, period. Amen. He regenerates an infant the same way he regenerates an adult. There is no difference in the word of God. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, you canst not tell. Whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is... What does it say? So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. If there's ever been an infant, unborn or born, that died and is in heaven, it's there by the Holy Spirit of God moving according to His own will. And he is justified, that baby is justified by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is by the obedience of one that many were made righteous. Men do not like a covenant salvation. It's all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And someone will say, well, is that baby ever going to (laughs) believe? When that baby arrived in heaven and meant the Lord Jesus Christ, that baby believes a whole lot more than you and I do. Amen. I mean, why, why do they need to believe here? They're believing there. Where does it say in the Bible? Those poor infants, they're saved by the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very way that we all are saved. Right. We have a consistent plan of salvation. Watch theologians struggle when they come to infants. We believe and maintain a consistent plan of salvation for the idiot and for the intelligent. It doesn't make any difference whether you were born an idiot, incapable of conscious faith in anything, or you're highly intelligent. Except there's probably more hope for those that are born idiots than those born intelligent. Although I speak as a fool when I say that because they're saved one and all alike that are in the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God in His election, His sovereign predestinating choice, and the perfect obedience of Christ on the cross and the sovereign regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. We're all saved the same way. We believe and maintain a consistent plan of salvation for perfect or faulty faith. Let's think about that for a moment. The poor Arminian. You ask an Arminian, what do you have to believe in order to be born again? And you'll get all sorts of answers. How little do you have to believe to be born again? And so they're watering down the gospel constantly, watering it down, watering it down, until today there's a massive controversy When you invite Jesus into your heart and you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, do you have to submit to Him as Lord? There's a raging controversy about this matter because the successful evangelists don't want to force men to to submit to Jesus as Lord. They just want to be able to tell them, just accept Him as Savior and you're born again. 
See, we don't, we don't play any games like that. Right. Because our faith, whether faulty or perfect, whether weak or strong, has nothing to do with our standing before God. Our standing before God is by perfect faith. Amen. The faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Who always obeyed and always pleased His Father in heaven. Amen. What will we do with the Galatians if we believe like the Calvinists? What will we do with the Galatians? The Galatians thought that you had to add to the work of Christ by being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses. Do you know what Paul said of them? Ye are fallen from grace. Christ has become of none effect. Now what do those words mean? If a, if a Calvinist was consistent, the Galatians went to hell. But they're not. And so the Galatians are in heaven. It's wonderful. In their minds, those poor Galatians got confused because some false brethren came up from Jerusalem. We're going to see it tonight in Acts chapter 15. And taught that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And these poor Gentiles, I mean, when a Jew came from Jerusalem, they, did, they listened. They listened. The capital of the Christian religion was Jerusalem. Jesus Christ had died at Jerusalem. The apostles were in Jerusalem. When those men came up, those false brethren came up from Jerusalem to Antioch and into Galatia and taught that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, it overthrew the faith of many. Much of the New Testament is written to try to reestablish that salvation is by grace against the claims of the Judaizing Jews. Right. How many of them died in their confusion? We don't even have to worry because they are saved with an everlasting salvation Amen. by the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. The fact that they were confused when they went out of this world, and so it is with so many today that are believers in the world, they're confused about all sorts of doctrines. But that confusion does not hinder the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Because the gospel is for our benefit here. It does not add to our place in heaven. If we miss it here, we miss it here and we suffer for it. Yep. You're in Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to start at verse 13. Here Paul again is writing to a second generation pastor, bishop named Timothy. And he says in verse 13, Till I come, Timothy, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself, and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Amen. Here is a salvation dependent upon the faithful diligence of a minister. He can save himself, and he can save his hearers. This doesn't have to do with election in the eternal phase of salvation. It has nothing to do with justification in the legal phase of salvation. This has nothing to do with regeneration. Timothy was already regenerate, or I hope Paul wouldn't have ordained him. Amen. In the vital phase of salvation. And it has nothing to do with glorification. That's not Timothy's work. That's the work of a mighty God. 
that's going to resurrect us all from the dead. This is the practical salvation of not being confused with false doctrine. If a minister does not give himself wholly to these things and meditate upon them and read and exhort and study for doctrine and take heed to both them and his personal life, he can lead his congregation astray and they will be lost. And most congregations today are lost. Because there's been a great falling away. Does it change their justification? Does it change their eternal destiny? Does it alter God's predestination and His purpose and grace that was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began? Will it separate us from the love of God? Is there something that we can lay to the charge of God's elect? No. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. You are not dependent upon men, either positively or negatively. They cannot separate you from the love of God, and they don't get you involved in the love of God. They tell you about the love of God. And Abraham and a lot are saved alike. It says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Yes. Abraham believed, and so we knew he was a righteous man. You got a problem with that? Nope. Phinehas took a javelin and ran it through a Moabite woman and an Israelite man, and it says in Psalm 106 that it was counted as righteousness to him forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you want to take verses about Abraham and his faith, then I'm going to take Phinehas in Psalm 106, and we're all going to be need, we're all going to need to carry spears around looking for our next fornicating couple so that we can be justified. We don't do that to become justified. We do that to show that we are justified. Right. Don't ask me if I'm angry about what I read in most systematic theologies unless you want to hear a positive answer. (laughs) It makes me ill. Amen. What's the most dangerous error that Satan can bring against the people of God? The one farthest from the truth or closest to the truth? Closest. Closest. Who cares about the Mormons? Listen, if you're tempted to join the Mormons, bye-bye. Because you've got problems. Deep problems. Right. But when religion comes to us in the name of Jesus Christ and and teaches election, teaches predestination, teaches the sovereignty of God and regeneration, teaches that Christ died only for the elect, we want to believe all that because we do believe those things. But then when it tries to put, put a burden of obligation upon the elect of God that they have to believe in order to be finally justified, they've done something that Romans 8.33 says they cannot do, and that's to lay something to the charge of God's elect. There is nothing that can be laid to the charge of God's elect because it is God that justifieth, not our faith. Amen. Our faith simply, and I'm going to show you a text in a minute that I hope will get you excited about that subject, but I, I, don't, I can't come go to it right yet. We understand the work of both atoms are applied to those that are in them, irrespective of cooperation. It doesn't matter whether a man cooperates with the first atom, accepts him, believes him, trusts him, or anything like that. That's a legal transaction in the court of heaven. Done. We're all guilty and condemned by Adam's single offense. And so it is all those that are chosen in Christ by election. The court of heaven has ruled, and I wrote you this this week, and I wanted you to meditate upon these things because we're going to go on from this subject next Sunday. 
there's more important things for us to be doing, and that's for us to be, be that's for us to be giving our lives and our bodies a living sacrifice for Amen. the God that has saved us so gloriously. Right. But the court of heaven has ruled. When Jesus Christ ascended up on high, he was buried for our offenses and rose again for our justification. Right. And when he ascended up into the presence of God, his sacrifice was accepted. There was nothing to add to it. All of the elect in him were guaranteed their eternal, final, complete salvation. Amen. That's right. We believe and have faith to be justified in our own minds, mm -hmm. in our own hearts, to lay hold of eternal life for our own peace and comfort doesn't add a thing to what has been transacted in heaven. What a difference it makes Amen. in theology and in practice when we believe that Jesus Christ alone is the Savior. I do not have time this morning, and because we do not have any others here that have never heard these things, you know that in the Bible there are several examples of those that never believed on Jesus Christ, and yet their place in heaven is absolutely secure, and the Bible tells us. Yep. For instance, the whole Old Testament. Right. You say, but Abraham saw my day. Yes, he saw it very vaguely. But what about Abraham's children? All they saw were carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Right, amen. How much did you have to believe? Again, we come back to questions that have to be asked. Everyone in the Old Covenant was saved the very same way we are, and we're going to see that tonight in Acts chapter 15. The very same thing we'll see tonight in Acts chapter 15. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints are saved the very same way by the amen. grace. The words are specifically by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, amen. Right. Old Testament and New Testament. There is no difference. There was a generation that wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years and fell over and died. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 calls them our fathers. They ate and drank of the Lord Jesus Christ because 1 Corinthians 10, the first four verses tell us that they ate and drank of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvinists can't stand that passage because it gives all the glory to Jesus Christ and takes it all away from their preaching of the gospel. Right, amen. But do you know what it says? It says they ate and drank of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But do you know what else it says about them? God was not well pleased with them because they were disobedient. And so they did not enter into his rest. That's Hebrews 3 and 4. And what rest are we talking about? The rest of heaven? No. The rest of Canaan for them. And the rest of the gospel for us. Right. They didn't enter into God's best for their lives because they rejected the gospel, though it didn't change their relationship to Jesus Christ. They ate and drank of him, which is our only basis and hope for eternal life, is to eat and drink of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 11 tells us about those that are enemies of the gospel, but are beloved for the Father's sake. Right. And the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, and so all Israel shall be saved, including those that believe and those that don't believe. Right. Because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God doesn't change his mind. You can go read about a rich young ruler whom Jesus loved very much who went away from him very sorrowful because he didn't want to part with all of his goods. You can read in John chapter 15 about those that are, that are in the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, that do not bear fruit. And he takes them away and he purges them and he burns them and he chastens them. But they are in the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
You were chosen there before the world began and placed there by God Almighty. But I'll tell you something. For a child of God in this life to hear the gospel and reject it, he is bringing upon himself the chastening hand of God. And there is absolutely no assurance for you that you have eternal life. None whatsoever. That is the character of the elect. When they hear the gospel, they believe. God's exceptions are God's exceptions, and we leave them right there as God's exceptions. We're in, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We preach the gospel so that the elect might know that they have eternal life, and that they might bring forth those fruits and works that prove they have eternal life, and please God by their lives. We preach the gospel so that men might know the great things that God has done for them. 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want you to see verse 12. Paul to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now, this verse is just strange, isn't it? Timothy was called unto eternal life. Paul's going to say of him that he was called to eternal life before the world began in the next chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he tells Timothy to lay hold on eternal life. Eternal life is right there and we can lay hold of it. That is, know that it is ours. Right. And have it in our possession. How do we do that? Fighting the good fight of faith in verse 12. Or we can come to verse 19 and it's upping your giving. Wow, I know some preachers on the radio that would love this text. (laughs) It says in verse 17, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good. You know, those Baptists out there make fun of the Catholics because they believe that they get eternal life by doing good. Do you know what the Bible says? It says, do good. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Brethren, look at the words and what it says. It says for the rich not to trust in their riches, but to do good and to be filled with good works and to be willing to distribute their money freely. And by so doing, they can lay up for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. And they can lay hold on eternal life. Now, is God? are we going to all get to heaven and the Lord's going to bring out a great financial statement for all of us? Here's what you earned. Here's what you paid. Enter into heaven. Here's what you earned. Here's what you paid. Enter into heaven. Is that how we're saved? No. Or are we saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Right. This is the evidence. The whole New Testament is evidence because the whole New Testament is written to those that believe. Amen. Right. How can you know that you have eternal life? How can you lay up a foundation against the time to come? Do all of you want a foundation in that great day? Amen. I do. Paul did. Do you remember what it says in Philippians chapter 3? I'm willing to count all things loss. And to know Christ. And to be found in Him, having His righteousness and not mine own. To know the power of His resurrection. To be conformable to the sufferings of His death. That I might by any means attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Are those the means of being resurrected in that great day? 
or are those the means of evidence of knowing you shall be resurrected in that great day? That is Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Do you all understand this? Amen. The Bible over and over and over is presenting the things that we are to do for the evidence of justification, the evidence of eternal life, the evidence of salvation. Right. And so here we have giving. Giving. Money. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Does this add to the justifying work of Christ? Nope. No. A little bit? Nope. But because this is written by the Holy Spirit of God, if we are willing to distribute of our things by faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, is it a good foundation for the time Amen. to come? Amen. Amen. Where's the foundation? Here and here. In our hearts and souls, we lay a foundation and we lay hold of eternal life. We make our calling and election sure so that in that great day we will receive an abundant entrance into his everlasting kingdom. And we know it in advance because we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we bring forth works to prove that faith. Amen. Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Here's another text that won't be preached anywhere today. James 2, verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Let all Arminians and all Calvinists handle James 2.14. Neither can handle it. Can faith save? That is a rhetorical question. Anyone want to venture the answer? No. Look at the text. James 2.14 What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith? Is there any profit? No. Can faith save him? No. It does as much good as if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? James 2, 14 through 26 is not teaching charitable giving. Blow that away. Verses 15 and 16 are an illustration of how utterly vain and stupid it is to have somebody that's naked and hungry and say to them, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them anything to eat or anything to put on. Is there any profit in those words? None. James 2.14, can faith save him? Can faith justify him? No. Faith with works is what we're going to read now. Even so, faith, verse 17, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. The poor Calvinist, he's got to have faith and works now in order for the elect to be justified. But see, we understand this passage here. This passage is nothing but pure evidence. It is not the securing of justification. It's the evidence to our consciences that we're justified. Right. Can faith by itself be sufficient evidence? No. It's faith with works that's a sufficient evidence of eternal life and of justification and of salvation. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Amen. That second man's a wise man. 
The other man has nothing. It's vain. It's empty. It's profitless. Right. Thou believest that there is one God? All Calvinists and Arminians, thou believest that there is one God? Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. It doesn't do them a bit of good. It is not, it's not even evidence, let alone the basis for regeneration or salvation like the Arminians want to claim. Right. Or the instrumental means of justification like the Calvinist wants. Because there is no faith without works. Faith without works is dead. It's alone. It's nothing. I don't care whose faith it is. It has to have works. Even the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ was backed up with constant works every single day of His life. Right. He always did those things that pleased His Father. Amen. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. That's sarcastic. James 2.19, verse 20, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Vain man? If you think that faith is anything, you're vain. That's why you've got to give and do good and do good works. Like we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now Isaac was about 16 years old when this happened. But the verse that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness took place a long time before that. And in fact, Abraham did a lot of good things a long time before it said that about him. There's a lot told about Abraham in the Bible. Verse 22 tells us, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Faith is brought to completion or fulfillment or shown to be sincere and true by works. It's made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Amen. What does that mean? Do you, are you able to understand that? In the Bible we have the words impute, account, and count. Abraham believed God, and it was counted. It was imputed. It was accounted to him for righteousness. When a man believes God, it is the evidence, the accounting, that he is righteous. Right. Let me show you. Just hold your finger at James 2 and come back a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 4. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained righteousness, God testifying of His obedience, and thereby He secured His own salvation. Nope. No. Hebrews 11.4. I, I say this to... I, I want you to look at the words of Holy Scripture. Every single one of them. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Abel had something within him that made him want to obey God. What was that? That is faith that comes by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. That faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That faith is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. Right. Abraham believed God that was counted to him for righteousness. Phinehas 
made shish kebab of two fornicators, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And as we're going to see in James chapter 2, the last two verses, Rahab lied to the men of her city and sent the spies out another way, and it was counted to her for righteousness. She was justified by works. And we're, we're given a little plainer statement of it for your understanding in Hebrews 11.4. Right. It was a witness of his righteousness. Because he did that, it showed that he was righteous. He didn't do it in order to secure righteousness. He did it to show that he was righteous. God testified and accepted his gifts, showing that he was a righteous man. Verse 23 of James 2, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then, look at verse 24, ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Do you know, I've told you this before, I'm not doing this except to, listen, I I owe my service to you people. I don't owe my service to all the heretics out there to be kind to them. I owe my service to you from the Lord Jesus Christ for you to understand the verses that you're reading and the weight they carry. Martin Luther tore this book out of his Bible because of James 2.24. He hated the book of James. He did not, he, he, he defiled the book. He reviled the book of James because he went into Romans 1.17 and saw the words, the just shall live by faith, and closed up his mind to what the rest of the Bible had to say. Because he went into Romans 1.17 like all Calvinists, the just shall live by faith, and thinks that that justification and that living there are in the sight of God a legal transaction by man's faith. And it isn't. So that when they come over here, they do not know how to handle this text. And all this chapter is talking about is evidence, brethren. Evidence. And that is what my whole, that is one of the primary purposes of my ministry. Any minister is to take a people that believe and show them that bare belief is no better than a devil's faith. Right. And for us to have true confidence of eternal life and for God to bear us witness that we're his elect, we have to do good. Amen. And to bring forth good works. And to have works like this. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified. Is there anyone here that even has a little tiny temptation in your soul to think that this justification in James chapter 2 is legal justification before God? I hope there isn't even a little, the tiniest, tiniest of doubt about this matter. This is purely the evidence of our justification. Right. Justified in our own minds. Justified in the sense that we have a witness being made of us that we're God's righteous people that have faith. Like, Ab- like it says of Abel in Hebrews 11 and verse 4. Oh. Turn, to first, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I just want to read a verse that I quoted earlier. I want you to see it. I want our children to see it. 1 John 5.13 These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. If the Arminian scheme of salvation is true, this is a waste of time. Do you understand that? 
Because if they already believed on the name of the Son of God, then their salvation is secure. There is nothing more that John could possibly add to their lives. He is wasting time and souls are dropping into hell because he's not writing unbelievers. But he's, isn't that true? If, if they ever held their theology consistently, but they don't. Right. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That is the gospel. They want John 3.16. John 3.16 was a verse written, was a verse stated by the Lord Jesus Christ to an ignorant ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus. You want to get a second generation apostle enlightening believers? Here's a verse. Right. 1 John 5.13 Do you know why we believe in the name of the Son of God? That you can know that you have eternal life and that you'll believe on Him more. Amen. That your faith will grow yet more and more in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's why we can come back to the first verse of that same chapter. Whosoever believeth, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ, is born. Perfect tense, passive voice of God. A man that believes, present tense, in the Lord Jesus Christ has been born of God and is in Possession of eternal life when he's doing his believing. Right. Because the whole book was written so that you could know that believers have eternal life. Right. 3.14. First, same book, 1 John 3.14. This is why we preach the gospel. 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death into life. How do we know that we've passed from death into life? Because we love the brethren. Now, are we going to start laying that down as a condition for men to be born again? Or do we... I'm not mad at you, brethren. I'm just mad at this little timepiece on my wrist. And I want you to be established in the truth. Are we going to take 1 John 3.14 because it says, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren, and we're going to make that a condition in order for us to be born again? So we, who by nature are hateful and hating one another... Titus chapter 3, are going to start loving one another in order to be born again. No, the verse says we know that we've passed, have passed from death into life because we love, present tense, the brethren. Right. Loving the brethren is an evidence of our eternal life. And this is the message of the New Testament. Amen. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. What is Paul's desire? Does he want to get some men elected that were previously not elected? No. Does Paul want to get some men given to the Lord Jesus Christ for Him to die for them that were previously not given to Christ? Does he want to have men regenerated that the Holy Spirit was not intending to regenerate? Or is he going to tell us in the context? For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Right? You don't need to read any further. You all of a sudden know what salvation's under consideration. Do you know what it is? It's a salvation to knowledge. It's a salvation to knowledge. It's what we sang in that, that song today. My conscious salvation. They weren't conscious of it yet. And it's going to tell us why they weren't conscious of it yet. And this is basically the lesson to much of the New Testament because this is to counteract the Judaizers. Verse 3, for they being ignorant. Do you understand the salvation? Amen. Yep. There are people sitting here in this assembly that have seen Romans 
on big banners hanging across platforms with pulpits in front of them, appealing to the whole crowd to come forward and offer their lives as missionaries to go out into the world because Romans 10.1 was, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. To go to unbelievers and try to get them saved. This verse is written that you can know that you have eternal life and to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Everyone that believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross to put away our sins, guess what he can do with the law? Sweep it out the back door as far as a means of justification. Amen. Sweep it out the back door. All that ceremonial law, the book of Leviticus. You get excited reading the book of Leviticus? Well, that's what they believed you had to do in order to be saved. And when a man sees that Jesus Christ fulfilled the whole law, and they trust Jesus Christ and His death on the cross as the only possible means of justification, the law is done. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness because Christ Himself is our righteousness. Amen. Right. This is a salvation from ignorance. Can you see that? Can you all see that? It's a salvation from ignorance. Now let's just reason for a second. Was Paul praying for those that weren't elect? Was Paul praying for those that weren't justified by Christ and the cross? Impossible. Was Paul praying for those that were not regenerated, thinking that he could convince them of the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificing the cross? Not a chance. These are elect, justified, regenerated saints of God. We know that by reading the context of Romans 9, 10, 11. Because in Romans chapter 9, Paul has already divided up Israel into the non-elect Israel and the elect Israel. Some are not the children of God and some are the children of God. And the only ones you'll be praying for are the children of God. Amen. And what's wrong with those children of God? They've listened to the Judaizers. We're going to be in it tonight in Acts chapter 15. They believed that you had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And they could mix Christ Jesus in with that. A horrible heresy. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. This is in verse 6. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above? Or who shall ascend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead? This word of this, this righteousness, this revelation of righteousness... Jesus doesn't have to come down again to bring it to you. We don't have to go looking down into the deep to find it. Where is this revelation of righteousness? But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Romans 10. Do you think that Romans 10 is addressed to the same people that Romans 9 was addressed to? Was 9 addressed to the same people that Romans 3 was addressed to? Was 3 to the same people Romans 1 was addressed to? Do you mean they were all the faithful brethren in Rome? Do you still believe that? Or have we left it? Was the first half of the book to the faithful brethren in Rome, and when we get to chapter 10, it's to the brothels of Rome. The same people. Remember, he wanted to meet with those Romans that he might be comforted together with the mutual faith, both of you and me. For the, because he said in Romans 1.17, for therein in the gospel is the righteousness of God. How God gave sinners righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Where does the faith come from? The faith comes in regeneration by the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Right. Paul had it. His hearers had it. And so both of them had it. They didn't need to go looking for it. 
They didn't need to go up to heaven or go down into the deep. It was already in their heart, implanted by God in regeneration. And what is the message that was already in their heart? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Brethren, I want to ask you something about Romans 10.9. To whom did Paul state those words? Believers. Believers. Did these believers, were they full of faith? Was Paul, was Paul excited about preaching to them amen. so that he could be comforted by their faith? Right. Because he knew that when he preached that they were going to say amen. amen. Romans 10.9. These things that I've written unto you that believe, in the, do you think Paul's purpose was different than John's? Nope. These things that are written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He's writing to believers whose faith is already spoken of throughout the whole world. And he tells them that if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. They already were saved. Right. But do you know what they wanted? What Paul wanted to give them? Greater confidence of their salvation. Trust in Christ. That's the evidence of salvation. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, believeth unto righteousness. You mean, should we take those words and mean that when a man believes in his heart, then God gives him righteousness? Or with the heart man believeth unto the proper object, source, and granting and gift of righteousness which is in Christ Jesus, instead of by the righteousness of the law. Right. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Because with that mouth we confess the Lord Jesus Christ when we're baptized. What doth hinder me to be baptized? If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Did he confess with his mouth the Lord Jesus? Yes. Will he be saved? Yes. Did he know he was saved? Yes. How was he saved? By the Lord Jesus Christ that Philip had just preached to him in the chariot. Acts chapter 8. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Brethren, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, is there even a small faint chance that in that great day of judgment, before the great white throne of God Almighty, that you'll be ashamed? No. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Because you have everlasting, perfect righteousness secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this chapter is about the evidence and increasing your confidence of your own salvation because Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. If you are trying to keep the law for your salvation in that great day of judgment, is there a little tiny faint possibility that you could get there and be ashamed? Amen. Okay, good. Do you all understand that? If you're trusting the... Do you know how many commandments there are in the in the in, in the Old Testament in the law of Mo, in the books of Moses? How many commandments there are? If you're trusting on that for your standing with God, so that when you stand before Him in that great day, is there a possibility you could be ashamed? Yes. Because you came back one day too early from one of the one thousand cleansings right. and periods of time by which you were ceremonially un unclean. Right. Do you think you could be ashamed? All of that is put away. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, that's the evidence of your eternal justification by the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never be ashamed. Amen. That was the gospel of Paul, and Paul was preaching this to believers whose faith was already spoken of throughout the whole world. 
And he's saving them from the Judaizers by describing Israel, the children of God, who were still blinded. And so he goes on in Romans chapter 11 to say that there's a mystery. Some of these elect children of God among the Israelites are blind to the gospel. But right here, we have this passage, passage that is used so much to think that we take the word of God in order to save men from hell, that we take the word of God in order for them to be born again, and that it's not the intent of this passage whatsoever. It's to save men from ignorance, to a knowledge of the truth, and to know that they'll never be ashamed. Right. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him exactly what we're going to see tonight in Acts chapter 15. You say, but it looks like you have to call upon him in order for the Lord to be rich unto you. It doesn't say that. It says that the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. It doesn't say that the Lord shall be rich unto all that call upon him. He is rich because if you're calling, he's been rich. He's been rich with his grace or you wouldn't be calling. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You cast your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved in that great day. Do you know what? That is such a distinguishing, identifying, discriminating condition for evidence. Because most men hate the Lord Jesus Christ. Most men hate Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And especially these Jews that Paul was talking about, the non-elect Jews and the elect that were blind. They were enemies of the gospel. Jesus Christ is a huge dividing point. Those that can call upon him show themselves to be very unique and to have faith like Abel's. It's a witness that they are indeed righteous. How How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How can anyone be saved from ignorance, saved to knowledge of the truth, put away the law, and have confidence of eternal life that there is no hope of you being ashamed? How can that ever happen unless... How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When the word of God is preached, faith comes into visible demonstration on the parts of all those that are God's elect. Amen. It's that simple. I want to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, that we can be comforted together by the mutual faith, both of you and me. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Amen. We preach the word of God And faith comes into visible demonstration in confession of the mouth after belief in the heart and works following to show that people are the elect of God, justified, righteous, and they'll never be ashamed. Why is the New Testament written? So that the elect of God can know that they have eternal life and they can believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The gospel can't help those that are perishing in sin. Jesus Christ only can help them. Right. There's so much more that could be said. I will leave you with these words the Apostle Paul said, Therefore I, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Amen. 
There's a salvation of eternal glory. And do you know how that's secured? By the operations of God in Romans chapter 8, for whom he did foreknow ends up with them being glorified. But there's another salvation that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's knowing that you have eternal life. And Paul said, therefore, I, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. The gospel salvation that he told Timothy, that if he'd give himself wholly to the ministry, he could save himself and his hearers. It is a glorious salvation. It's the rest of the gospel of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. It's the good foundation against the time to come, knowing that we have eternal life. Paul preached the gospel for the elect's sake. That is 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this day. Amen. Amen.